your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, February 24th. I'm Terry Aranga with my guest, Dr. Rob Coben. Dr. Coben has been a licensed psychologist in the state of New York since 1994. He is the director and chief neuropsychologist of a private clinic in New York, which is also an affiliated research site with the New York University's Brain Research Lab. Dr. Coben is board certified in EEG biofeedback and a diplomat of the QEEG certification board. He has authored papers such as EEG Power and Coherence in Autistic Spectrum Disorder in Clinical Neurophysiology. Our topic today is the importance of EEG assessment for autism spectrum disorders and EEG operant conditioning as a treatment for autism spectrum disorders. Dr. Coben, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Well, Dr. Coben, what do you think causes autism, the basic physiological mechanisms that cause the symptoms? Um, well, the cause, be it, is probably some form of epigenetic phenomenon. It comes from genetics and environmental forces. And what we seem to see in these children is that there are significant uh, brain um, changes that are different than normal development, and it's those uh, changes or anomalies that we uh, spend our time evaluating and treating uh, through the techniques that we'll talk about today. Now, you mentioned the term epigenetics. What does that mean? Uh, Epigenetics is basically a combination uh, in terms of etiology or cause between genetics and environmental influences. Can these environmental influences be uh, delivered prenatally and postnatally? Absolutely. So um, the the types of things that you're seeing in the brain, does this involve um, neuroinflammation? Right. So we we believe that the initial impetus for the brain changes is, in fact, neuroinflammation at a very young age, um, usually sometime between zero and two years of age. Uh, probably at the latest, Uh, as a result of neuroinflammation, there is a set of events that appear to occur in the brains of these children that then prevent normal development and, importantly, normal development of what we call connectivity or communication pathways in the brain. All right. So from what you're saying, it sounds as if neuroinflammation impacts the central nervous system and neural connectivity in a developing brain. Absolutely. For, you know, for listeners who are new to this whole area, give us, try to paint a picture for us of what neuro, neural connectivity is of different areas of the brain communicating. Okay. Um, basically, uh, the brain is made up of a series of cells called neurons that most people have heard of, and there's hundreds and thousands and millions of those in the central nervous system, um, with those in the brain being the most critical for our conversation, Um, and those individual cells 
send messages to other cells, and there's streams of hundreds and thousands of communication networks that develop in the brain as a result of that. And basically any human activity, whether it be control over a behavior, uh, thinking, speech, visual perception, uh, even the experience of emotions, is related to the degree to which those connecting cell networks are functioning properly. All right. So it, it sounds as if something, from what you said, from two, zero to two uh, years of age uh, might have impacted this. Yes. Yeah, so, so we believe there is something, whether it is laid down genetically or there's some environmental influence um, during pregnancy or birth or even afterwards, that sets off a series of events that leads to some sort of inflammatory process in the brain. That inflammatory process then um, condenses or halts these communication networks from developing normally. And what we know thus far is that this seems to happen primarily in what's called the white matter of the brain, especially towards the front portion of the brain. The white matter of the brain are these connecting fibers between these cells and neurons. The front part of the brain has a lot to do with the development of behavioral, emotional, uh, and social control, as well as language and, and other uh, capabilities. And this neuroinflammation then basically halts the development of these networks, causing them to be overly connected with each other. That sort of over or hyper connectedness then prevents development in other areas. So you get a combination of areas that are too tightly bound together and connected, basically operating as one, and other areas that are too loosely connected, and those skills and integrative abilities uh, do not develop normally as a result. I wonder, is this why um, some parents have reported uneven skill sets in their children? Absolutely, because there are areas that are affected more than others and certain areas that aren't affected at all, that are completely normal in development. So some of those areas are perfectly fine, whereas other areas clearly are uh, negatively impacted by this um, anomalous development. Now, I wonder if you'd please define some of the tests for listeners, and, and this is going to be a mouthful, okay, and, and I hope I don't miss any, but there are MRIs, functional MRIs, uh, magnoencephalography, positron emission tomography, single photon emission computed tomography, and of course EEGs. So what are these and what's the basic difference here and how they would look at an autistic child's brain? Okay. So we'll start with MRI. Um, uh, MRI, which is uh, recent advancement, CAT scan used to be the previous version of this, a structural MRI is basically um, in, in essence, an x-ray, if you will, um, of the brain. It is a picture of what it looks like, okay? And it measures the structure, not the function. So the major importance, um, especially uh, in autism, is that most of these kids, not all, but most have normal structural development. Now, clearly, there are um, more severe cases where there's abnormal structural development, but in most cases, the structure is normal. Everything is there. It's the functional or this connectedness that seems to be the problem. So the MRI looks at the structure of the brain. An fMRI, which stands for functional 
MRI actually looks at how the brain performs operations. So, for example, someone would be in an MRI machine and they might wear goggles of some type and they would be shown pictures and asked to interpret what the pictures are or remember those pictures. During that procedure, the fMRI would measure the portions of the brain that become active or underactive during that procedure. So it's now measuring the functioning of the brain. Uh, in, MRI, in fMRI, you can also measure connectedness of regions during those activities. Now we move on to, um, I guess PET was probably the next one you talked about, positron emission tomography, which measures the absorption um, in the brain of different chemicals that are usually put into the body uh, through a dye that's, that's injected uh, into the body, and then it measures the absorption of that, usually glucose or oxygen or some other tracer material. Again, that is measuring functioning of the brain, usually in terms of oxygenation. Uh, SPECT, single photon emission commuted tomography, is similar uh, but different in the sense that now it's measuring usually a uh, radionucleotide that's injected, a specific chemical tracer, and then the absorption of that tracer is monitored. So there are some cases where you can actually measure specific neurotransmitter systems and their utilization through SPECT scan. You then get to the group of measurements called MEG and EEG. MEG stands for magnoencephalography, which is done in a magnetized environment but is measuring uh, electrical activity in the brain. Um, that electrical activity is basically the hundreds and thousands of cells firing and communicating with each other. Okay. EEG, or electroencephalography, is the measurement of that same activity but without the magnetic environment. The advantage to EEG and MEG over some of the other techniques is, number one, especially in the case of EEG, um, it's more readily available. Uh, it's usually not as expensive a procedure. Um, and the time dimension is very important. So in an MRI or fMRI machine, the response from the time you deliver a stimulus to the time someone's responding and it's measured can be from a half to two seconds in duration. In EEG and MEG responses, you can measure responses at 50 milliseconds or less. So the time dimension, how quickly the brain is responding and processing information um, becomes very um, easy uh, to measure with those technologies. Um, but many of the technologies, fMRI, PET, SPECT, EEG, MEG, are what we want to look at in these children, and that is the functioning of the brain, not so much the structure, and any of those techniques that can then also look at the connectedness or communication pathways become critical in terms of understanding uh, these children in general and an individual child that might go through such a procedure. So do EEG, MRI, and the other studies usually agree with or complement each other insofar as what they show for a child, or could more than one test show reasons for things like facial processing or social skills problems? Um, certainly you're getting different information. fMRI, for example, is looking more at oxygenation, um, blood flow and responses. 
where EEG would look at more at the electrical patterns and the spread and connectedness of those things. So you get different types of information, and as we talked about, the EEG will look at the temporal domain much faster than the fMRI would. But in general, they're assessing brain function, and it seems that you do get uh, similar results across tests as well. Okay. Very good. And we will be back with Dr. Rob Coben when we return to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Inside all of us lives a warrior. We win battles with our careers, our finances, our children, our pets. It's time that the warrior within wins the battles with our own being. Modern-day Renaissance man Ori Hoffmeckler dispels eating urban legends and fitness myths in Voice America Network's The Warrior Within, your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Ori sets the record straight and will help you become leaner and healthier for a lifetime. The Warrior Within broadcasts live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in for your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. If you've tried everything on the market and can't seem to get the radiant results you want from your skincare routine, it's time you stop shopping and start listening. Skin Health Today will help you take charge and start making smart choices for a lifetime of radiant skin and positive self-image. Join host Celeste Hilling and her esteemed panel of experts every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for Skin Health Today on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Well, we are back with Dr. Rob Coben. And um, Dr. Coben, before the break, we were talking about a lot of different tests. Um, let's talk about the neuroimaging studies. What have they told us about uh, activity or uh, what is going on in the brain of uh, people who have autism? Well, that's, uh, that topic could take hours in and of itself. But um, in general, 
um, the results have shown us that, number one, um, getting back to the notion of neuroinflammation, that there is this sort of enlargement of children's brains uh, with autism. And this sort of enlarged heads or enlarged brains sort of led to and I think confirmed some of the notions of this neuroinflammation theory. Um, that's finding number one. There are certainly findings related to specific regions of the brain as well. Um, areas that are frequently implicated include the temporal lobes of the brain, uh, which on the right side of the brain have a lot to do with fear and anxiety and emotional experiences. On the left side of the brain have a lot to do with language functions. Uh, there are other regions of the brain uh, that are implicated very specifically in language, such as the frontal lobes and, uh, and especially on the left side of the brain, which deals with expressive language functions. And there are critical regions in the brain that deal with the socialization aspects that you see in these children, specifically um, areas of the brain that are implicated in eye tracking and eye gaze and processing, uh, back in what's called the fusiform gyrus. There's then a connection from that area to an area in the limbic system called the amygdala, which has a lot to do with interpreting and understanding what these children see and perceive in people. And one theory is that it's their difficulty in correctly processing people and emotions that causes these socialization difficulties. And in fact, neuroimaging and EEG and other studies uh, are pointing to difficulties in those areas. So it really is very complicated. There are multiple areas involved all at once, but there do appear to be specific areas involved more than others uh, in these children. You know, we always get into um, a chicken and an egg discussion, which came first, the chicken or the egg, uh, in that a news report will come out and it will say such and such was found, you know, um, more white matter or some such, and this is what causes autism. But then, you know, you have to dig deeper and, and wonder, well, was it something else that caused that to occur? What do you think about that? I mean, right. people can't just look at the brain and say, oh, it was this way, so that's what, um, that's the end of the story, that's what caused autism, without digging deeper and saying, well, why did these anomalies occur? Right, exactly. I mean, we are beginning to understand these anomalies in the brain and central nervous system and beginning, just beginning, to piece them together with different symptoms or problems that are experienced by these children. Um, but something has to cause the brain or the neuroinflammation to occur to begin with. And we're really, really at an infancy stage in trying to understand that. There are some people believe uh, that it's caused by uh, environmental and toxic influences, and there's another group of people that believe that there's more genetic influences. In fact, there's been some recent chromosomal findings linking particular chromosomes and aspects of those chromosomes um, to these poor developments. For example, there's one that is actually implicated in the development of uh, neuroconnectedness that's actually been found to be uh, a problem area uh, in autistic families. 
but clearly there's much more that needs to be learned and understood from this standpoint so that we know better what's going on here, how to treat it, and hopefully someday how to prevent it. Now, how prevalent is seizure activity in autism? Um, we're hearing more and more reports of seizure activity, uh, including children who are reaching puberty. And do we know that the reasons that it may be occurring? Um, the, the estimates vary. The, the general estimates are anywhere between about 30 and 50 percent of kids with autism have some form of seizure activity. Now, that could be in the form of generalized grand mal seizures where they eventually become unconscious and it spreads across the entire brain, or it could be something called, uh, referred to as partial seizure activity where there is a specific focus and it's only in one region of the brain. There are also a host of these kids that when you run EEGs on them don't have what we would necessarily call seizure activity, but they have abnormalities that resemble that what we call spike and wave activity, which clearly represent dysfunction in a given region of the brain. Um, so, so there's really a lot involved there. Fortunately, the EEG can very easily, uh, well, in most cases, uh, pick up these sorts of activities. In terms of what causes this seizure activity, again, um, it, it's hard to know, uh, but, but generally speaking, there is some sort of anomalous development that leads to uh, abnormal tissue. And when the electrical signals are being sent across that tissue for whatever reason, there's a spiking of electrical activity, which then is not controlled and regulated, which then leads to a seizure. Um, that can happen um, at any point and sometimes can happen at different points in development. So some children, you'll see them at one and two years of age, Others not until they're teenagers, some not until they're adults. There's a lot of variation in the presentation of seizures. Is there a correlation between abnormal EEG activity and children who previously regressed or between a child's level of functioning in seizures? Do you see children who are less able having more seizures than children who are more able? Do you see more children who had had a regression as presenting with a history of seizures? Well, uh, clearly children with autism and seizures have more abnormalities in their EEG than children with autism that don't have seizures. Um, and we can trace those abnormalities usually, usually to very specific regions in the brain that we call the seizure foci. That's the area basically where it starts. Um, in terms of um, the second part of the question? Is there a correlation between... Other oh, regression. That's yeah. Um, this is actually a bit of a controversial issue that's being debated um, in the scientific literature. There are some that believe, that have found that kids that regress basically have no difference in their EEGs than kids that haven't, um, where others have found that Clearly, um, those regressions are related to more EEG abnormalities. And we still do not know yet if those regressions are related to seizures or not. Uh, they may be in some cases and not in others. All right. Did you um, mention earlier whether EEGs indicate both structural problems and transmission problems in the brain? 
No, EEGs do not measure the structure of the brain. Okay, that would be something like an MRI. Correct. Okay. Now, when you're when you're using um, the EEG, you're able to. Are you actually able to chart where the problems are and what type of function that part of the brain is supposed to take care of? You mentioned things earlier, like um, speech and. Uh, emotions, behavior, socialization, um, there's reading. Right. So so we can do an EEG on an individual, which is not a difficult procedure to do. Um, it's done in the office. Uh, we then take those results afterwards, and we can analyze those with various types of software that can actually map the EEG activity so we can see where the problems are coming from or, or over what regions we see those problems. And we have a fairly good understanding at this point in time of what different parts of the brain do and how they participate in function. So as a result, we can take the functional problems that these kids have and relate them to any EEG abnormalities we see in those regions of the brain and can have a pretty good idea of what is controlling what um, and where those problems are coming from. Okay, and then of what practical value would this be for treatment? How would you target treatment? Well, then we can target treatment that um, might um, target those specific regions, specifically the treatment that we do in our clinic um, called EEG biofeedback or operant conditioning can actually target specific brain regions um, and exercise them to the point where they can develop uh, not only diminishing the EEG abnormalities, but enhance it, therapeutically enhancing the uh, connectivity aspects that, we, that we've been talking about. Right, and um, just in a general sense, do these, uh, do these beneficial effects from using the biofeedback, uh, do they last? Are they more effective than drugs? Um, well, what, what we understand right now is that when we target the biofeedback treatment specifically to the EEG abnormalities of that individual, so one of the really important components of the treatment is that it is highly individualized. That's great. So we have the EEG findings. We find out where the problems are, what they are, and then the biofeedback treatment can actually target those specific problems. In doing so, we've been able to show that about 90% of the kids on the spectrum that do this treatment improve significantly. Uh, the average rate of improvement over about a six-month period of training is a reduction of about 60% of their autistic symptoms are diminished, which is very sig significant for a lot of these children. All right, that does sound significant, and we will pick up with this when we come back from break on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel with Dr. Rob Coben, and thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. 
More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child. Join Dr. Gloria Horsley, marriage and family therapist and bereaved parent, while she interviews and discusses with other bereaved parents and siblings how they have coped with the death of a child and gone on to create and realize new dreams. So tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley, right here on Voice America Health and Wellness. Holistic living is nutrition for not just your body, but your mind and your soul. Holistic nutrition goes far beyond the foods that we eat or the supplements that we take. Discover natural means to heal your body and regain your innate healing powers. That's Holistic Living with Tina Marie Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for your weekly dose of good holistic living. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Rob Coven, and before the break, Dr. Coven, um, you were talking about the significant success rate using biofeedback. I need to ask you, is biofeedback synonymous with neurofeedback and EEG operant conditioning? Yes, they're all one and the same. Okay, and what's the difference between EEG and QEEG that we sometimes hear about? Okay, the EEG is basically the measurement of the um, electroencephalogram, in other words, putting electrodes in place and just acquiring the electrical activity. And um, most neurologists, for example, look um, at the tracings of the EEG to determine if there are seizures or other major abnormalities. QEEG, which stands for quantitative EEG, was a development in the analysis of how you look at an EEG so that you can take the EEG as a total and compare that to a normative or healthy standard for a given age group. So let's say we're evaluating a seven-year-old child with suspected autism, and we want to know, number one, is there abnormal development for their age, and number two, over what regions might that be located. We can take their EEG, compare it to hundreds of kids their same age to see if there are abnormalities that we can measure statistically. 
and from that you can get very specific and accurate measurements about um, abnormalities and regions of abnormalities that we then use to individualize this treatment. Mm. I'm going to make kind of a smart alecky remark here. Um, you know, there are so many children affected these days, um, and, and I don't believe that it, um, that there can be such a thing as a genetic epidemic, but there are so many children affected these days, we're going to be, start running out of controls to compare to. <laughs> um, you, know, you know, it's true. It, it, it's amazing um, how many kids are affected by this. The normative groups have been accumulated and more are being accumulated, but you can compare an individual child to the same group. So, for example, let's say we collected data on 100 children uh, two years ago. We can use that data over and over again to compare to an individual child. Ah. So we don't need an additional control to look at the results of one child. We have that data stored in a data bank, and we can look at that uh, indefinitely. Now, obviously, you want to collect new data as time goes on, and, and certainly that's being done. Um, but you can use that for quite some time. All right. So let's get back to what you were saying about uh, about the success rate. Um, you were citing if individuals stay in uh, the program for six months and and some really good percentages there. But is that is that for children such as whom have ADHD or for children who have full syndrome autism who are uh, virtually nonverbal? Okay. These rates um, do not include ADHD. These rates are all for children on the autistic spectrum. Um, and the kids in these studies vary from average intelligence, some of them high intelligence who probably have HFA or Asperger's uh, syndrome. Um, but there are also uh, portions of the sample that are lower functioning. Uh, and in in this particular study where we looked at 125 kids on the spectrum and how they progressed through the therapy. We had, I would say, 30 of them, uh, actually it was 35, below an IQ of 80. The lowest IQ was 50. And for those children, they improved significantly as well. So while it would stand to reason that not every child with autism could participate in this treatment, at least initially, um, there are many that can, and the ones that do uh, seem to benefit from it. All right, so let's differentiate between the groups. Um, let's talk about kids who have ADHD. Um, they have attention issues, and how would the neurofeedback help the attention issues and any, you were talking about neural connectivity related to that? Okay, well, if we're talking about a child with only ADHD and no spectrum issues, um, this treatment has been employed uh, for ADHD symptoms for over three decades now uh, with very good results, even those that rival medications. So there actually have been studies that compare uh, the use of neurofeedback to the use of Ritalin for kids with ADHD and the results are almost identical um, with one with two important exceptions, and that is that the use of neurofeedback does not lead to uh, side effects. Yeah, <laughs> very important. <laughs> yeah, basically 
Um, it's exercise. That's all it is. Nothing is going into someone's body when you do this treatment. You're basically measuring their brain, showing it to them in the form of a game, and they're playing that game with their brain. While they're doing this, they're exercising those regions of the brain to make them stronger. Um, and that's basically how it works. So because it's exercise only, there is basically no chance for any major side effect because they're doing it themselves. The other major uh, difference between this and medication is that neurofeedback in these studies with ADHD has been shown to last beyond the period of time where you're doing the training. So one particular study was done where they took uh, 50 kids that did the biofeedback, 50 that went on Ritalin. They treated them for three months. One group had the Ritalin. One group had the biofeedback. And then at the end of the three months, they measured their improvement. Both groups improved about the same. Um, and then they stopped the treatments. And then six months later, they called them back in and measured their functioning again. They showed the group that had the biofeedback stayed where they were. So their gains were maintained, whereas the group that had the Ritalin went back to where they started uh, in terms of their functioning. So right. there is some significant information that the effects that this biofeedback, neurofeedback has on these kids uh, are long-lasting, and that's very, very important. Right, because as you said, it's exercising their own brain. Right, exactly, exactly. And it seems that that exercise leads to some sort of um, change that endures and stays with them. Okay. Um, can you paint a picture for us? I bring my son into your office. An elect electrodes are placed on his head, um, he's placed in front of a computer screen to engage in a game. How does the how does this facilitate exercising his brain exactly? Okay, so let's take a typical example of uh, a session. We would have a kid come in. We place a series, usually only a few sensors uh, on their scalp, and usually maybe a clip on one of their earlobes. Um, some of the kids, as you know, that are very sensitive to touch um, kind of squirm a little bit uh, at the idea of doing this, but they get used to it, and, and most are able to, to do it. There are very few that can't. Um, and those sensors are then measuring the activity from the parts of the brain where those sensors are located on their scalp. Okay? So it picks up the activity underneath those sensors. That activity is then sent to a computer that the therapist operates. There's a cable then connecting that therapist computer to a computer that the client or the child sees in front of them. And that computer has a game on it. So let's take, for example, that there's some sort of car racing game on the screen. And they have a car and there's other cars trying to race them. Because the computer that is measuring their EEG is connected to that computer, we can set up sort of definitions in that game that say when the person's brain activity gets better and looks more, quote-unquote, normal, make their car be winning the race. And when it doesn't, when their brain activity, say, slows down and they're not processing information as quickly, make the other cars go in front of them. So the person the child that's experiencing then is actually playing this game. I mean, they're used to playing video games. So they're playing this game, but instead of having a controller or a joystick in front of them, they're only playing it with their brain activity. 
And the only way to, for them to win or succeed at that game is for them to improve the way their brain is controlling these responses. And that causes the exercise component of the treatment to occur. So the game is essentially motivating them to change themselves to improve. So in essence, it's sort of like a behavior modification program, but for their brain activity. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty cool. We should emphasize to listeners that this is uh, totally hands-off. The child doesn't need to be able to manipulate a joystick or anything. They're totally uh, uh, playing the game with their mind. That's exactly what happens. They're playing it with their mind, and the better they do, basically the better they get, and that's how it works. So can you give, um, are you allowed to give some concrete examples of kids whom you've seen helped or studies that talk about this? Um, sure. Uh, so let me give you one example of a kid that came into our office a couple years ago. Uh, when he first presented our office, he was seven, I believe, at the time. Um, and he was already diagnosed with uh, PDD and OS. Um, and he, he wasn't able to read anything at this point, uh, any words. He was he barely uh, was able to identify letters. His speech, while he had words and even phrases, um, it was very confused and disorganized, and he didn't understand as well. And in fact, when he first came to us, he was under the chairs in our office waiting room and had great difficulty engaging people and socializing with kids and, and adults as well. When we first started to treat him, we actually found that he had um, a partial seizure disorder um, over the region of the brain involved in language understanding and reading. Um, so one of the first targets of the treatment was to try to help that region of the brain to improve. And once that happened, his <clears throat> speech became much more organized. He was able to understand <clears throat> excuse me, much better than that. Um, and started to improve. His behavior started to improve as a result as well. Um, he was more organized. Um, he wasn't as fearful of people. Um, there was a second phase to the treatment that then dealt with the socialization aspects of his problems. And one of the things that's important is that each of these functions are in a different part of the brain. So we can't just do one thing for someone in one region and expect it to affect something else. So then we move the treatment on to work on another skill or ability area. Okay, and more on this when we come back with America Health and Wellness Channel. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the 
the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymedica.com. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Well, before we went to break, Dr. Tobin, you were giving us a concrete example of a boy whom you had helped, and you were talking about, you were alluding to the fact that the different regions of the brain aren't in isolation and that you're addressing more than one. So can you pick up with that? Right. So the initial treatment um, with this boy involved first training the left side of the brain, which dealt, which deals with more language functions. From that, we move to the right side of the brain, especially towards the back of the brain. It tends to deal with the notion of socialization and perceptual aspects. As a result of that, his socialization was enhanced greatly. Um, started having friends and play dates, and and while his functioning is not completely normal in that area, or as much as his parents would probably like it to be, there were dramatic improvements, which now can be worked on further with other social skills training and other therapies. And the last thing we did was we focused specifically on the reading area of the brain, um, and then from that he started. Uh, reading words, uh, sentences, and has all but uh, caught up to his peers uh, in those abilities. So, you know, that's just one example um, of the types of changes that can occur as a result of the treatment. Now, uh, if a child is using biomedical treatments also as part of their uh, whole therapy program, is EEG able to chart improvements that were made via biomedical treatments at least uh, uh, you could assume that there may be these correlations? Yeah, absolutely, and, and we've done that for other treatments as well. For example, we've had cases that go through uh, hyperbaric oxygen treatment where we do before and after QEEGs, and you can actually, there's a statistical process where you can measure very specific changes in the EEG from one time to another. So any treatment that has the potential to change brain functioning, uh, EEG can be used to measure those changes. Yes. Wow, that just kind of that corroborates the fact that helping other parts of the body helps the brain as well, that it's not just uh, some isolated psychological disorder that's all in your head. Yep, absolutely. Which all, is a, all the body is connected. Everything yeah. works together. Which is another good reason to try this rather than simply resorting to psychoactive drugs that may have uh, adverse side effects. 
Yeah, there are so many things you can do um, other than medication that can help these kids. Well, before we run out of time, I want to make sure that, that I ask you this. How do you find a good practitioner? Is there a website? Um, there are um, several websites. Um, the first one that I would recommend is the website of the professional organization, which is ISN, and as in Nancy, R, dot org. Um, and that has um, a lot of very valuable information about what neurofeedback is, about the research that's been done in the area, and a lot of other information. On that website, there's also a list of practitioners uh, that practice, and you can look up by geographical location. There's one other website called bcia.org, and this is actually the national certification body that board certifies people to practice in this area. And I would highly recommend that anyone looking for a practitioner make sure that they are, in fact, board certified in EEG biofeedback, uh, as, as that demonstrates at least some basic competence in the area. That would be very important. Okay. Um, there was a book that I read years ago that listeners may be interested in knowing about, and that was called Symphony in the Brain. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Uh, Symphony in the Brain uh, was a book written probably at least 10 years old at this point. And I think the second edition just came out about six months ago. Um, so if they want to look for the newer edition, there's some new information in there, um, including uh, some of the work that we've done in our clinic. Um, and it goes through kind of the history of the development of neurofeedback and areas it can be used for, such as seizures, ADHD, and now there's information in there about... Um, autistic spectrum disorder as well. All right. Well, in the time remaining, if you could please tell us about some of the studies that have been published on this. On the treatment? Right, on neurofeedback, right, involving okay. neurofeedback. Okay. The initial um, pilot study was actually published in 2002 um, by a wonderful woman by the name of Betty Jurashevitz, who's in New Jersey, um, who did a study looking at uh, 24 children, 12 of them received neurofeedback, and the other 12 uh, was in a control group, and she showed that basically the kids that got the treatment uh, decreased their symptoms by a quarter, basically, over a relatively short period of time, about three or four months, whereas the kids that did not receive the treatment basically um, did, not, did not get better at all, and they weren't receiving any other treatments at the time. So that seemed to suggest there was some benefit from the treatment. Since that time, and actually over the past two or three years, there has been a lot more attention being paid to this in terms of researching um, uh, this application for these children. Uh, we've done a series of studies. There's a gentleman at the University of California, San Diego, by the name of Jaime Panita, who's also done some research on the notion of what's called mirror neuron dysfunction, and how neurofeedback might actually be able to change that in these kids, and he's shown positive results as well. There's a lot more research that needs to be done to show uh, conclusively to people that this may be a treatment that's beneficial, but the work that has been done uh, is very promising. Right, and you wrote, uh, you wrote also a paper that was called uh, EEG Power and Coherence in Autistic Spectrum Disorder. Can you explain what 
you mean by coherence in that? Right. So uh, coherence is the measurement in the EEG that looks at these communication pathways. So coherence basically measures from one region of the brain to another how similar the activity is, basically. And the notion is that if the activity is similar in region A and similar in region B, then they're working together to to perform some sort of mental operation or behavioral control or whatever the case might be. So we measured uh, levels of coherence in these children uh, and found that there were problems in those areas, similar to studies with fMRI and MRI that have shown uh, connectivity problems. So it's the, e- the way you use the EEG to measure uh, that same process. That's what coherence refers to. Okay. Well, in the time that we have remaining, would you like to make any closing remarks or give us examples of other children who you've seen seen help? Well, we've uh, recently actually um, been uh, treating more and more children that are actually lower and lower uh, functioning on the spectrum, many of them that are nonverbal when they first begin the treatment. And we've been able to show that even in those kids, um, there's, there can be significant improvement. Um, so my impetus to people hearing this would be to not think that this is a type of treatment that can only be used for someone with Asperger's, for example, that can fully communicate, understand what's happening, and only has social-related issues. But this is potentially a treatment that can be applicable to a wide range of children, some of which you would think couldn't do it, but it's really kind of amazing what happens with these kids when they get in front of some sort of game. It really captures their attention, and and as a result, they seem to benefit from it as well. Wow, that is really wonderful. Yeah, my son was playing Pac-Man with his brain. (laughs) Great. And and I think, too, that this is another tool in the toolbox that, that shows that The kids have real issues that they can be helped with rather than just sloughing it off as some psychological thing or psychiatric thing or uh, using the Band-Aid of medication. Uh, Right. These are things that are changeable. And I think, you know, that's really the take-home message for all of this. There are are many forms of intervention. This isn't the be-all, end-all to anything. This is one thing that can be applied to help these kids, but that they can be helped, and you can change things that we once thought were not changeable, um, and they can really benefit and improve their lives as a result. Well, thank you for that wonderful message, Dr. Tobin, and for this important information about the uses and help with for autism spectrum disorders and Dr. Tobin will have an article coming up in the July issue of the Autism File magazine. Please visit www.autismfile.com. Dr. Coben will also be uh, at the Autism One Conference. Please visit www.autismone.org for information. My guests next week, March 3rd, doctor, will be Dr. John Cannell and Meyer Eisenstein talking about vitamin C. For questions about this program, please email me at taranga at autismone.org. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
Friends of Medica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.